If you would open your Bibles up to Philippians chapter 2, it's on page 980 in your Blue Pew Bibles. And before we come to God's Word, let us ask for His help tonight. Father, we do thank you for the gathering of your people. More importantly, thank you for the grace of your word, knowing that your spirit will attend to this work. And so we ask that you would help us this evening. After another long day, we come to the night and it's tempting to check out, tempting to think, uh, we know these things already. We know that you have much to teach us about you, and more importantly, about your son. And so we pray that you would help us this evening. We ask all of this in our Lord's name. Amen. Amen. Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, we'll be reading through verse 11. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ... Any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility. Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus... Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now I want to give us a quick lay of the land of where we're at. We're in the middle of Paul's opening section. He, he opens the book of Philippians offering a prayer for these brothers and sisters, then begins a section in chapter 1, verse 12, that is going to extend on through here in chapter 2, all the way down to verse 18. And in the previous paragraph, what, what Paul's been doing through this whole section is dealing with the question of what is going to happen to the gospel ministry, both Paul's and theirs. Paul's because he's been thrown into church, or not into church, into jail. Uh, and the Philippians are wondering what is going to happen to this work that Paul is doing. And, and now here in these last two paragraphs, what we just read in the previous one, Paul is dealing with 
now not the threat to his ministry, but it is the threat to the global church's ministry. In the previous verses at the end of chapter 1, Paul is dealing with the threat coming from outside of the church, the threat of persecution, the threat of affliction that is coming, that there is suffering, and Paul is addressing the chance that the gospel will not go forward because the Philippian church will shrink back in fear in the face of that persecution. And as they stand strong and firm and resolute, continuing to proclaim the gospel, Paul is telling them that One, the gospel is going to keep going forward. And two, your firmness and your resoluteness is going to be a demonstration that what you say about the gospel really is true because you believe that there is something more coming after this life. So so Paul's addressing the threat from outside the church. And now Paul is addressing the threat from inside the church. Namely, the threat of their disunity and dysfunction as a body of Christ. So just as much as persecution can scare the church into silence, and the gospel is now not going forward, and the witness to what we say about the gospel is being tarnished because of their fear, just as much as that is a threat, there is a great threat from within the church. Our disunity as a body turns our focus from the mission of the gospel and making disciples, and now our focus gets turned inward to our own personal affairs. So you see, once again, the threat from this disunity means the gospel's not going forward. And again, this Dysfunction is demonstrating something about the gospel. It's demonstrating a lack of belief in the forgiving power and the grace of Christ. It's demonstrating a lack of belief in the humility of our Savior that we follow. So Paul's saying there's a threat that you are in danger of corrupting the mission if this dysfunctionality continues among you. And so simply this evening, what I want to do is look at Paul's plea to them for unity and then Christ's example of humility that Paul gives that he intends for us to follow. So first, Paul's plea. What what does he want from them? What specifically is he asking? He tells them, says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. And and as he's pleading with them, we see already that melodic line that we saw at the first sermon I preached on this text. This melodic line of joy that is being woven throughout the book of Philippians. Paul's repeating again, complete my joy. And you think about thus far, what does Paul rejoice in in the book of Philippians? Well, he's rejoiced in their partnership in the gospel up in uh, the first opening section, I believe in verse 3. He's rejoiced in the fact that even though there are these rival preachers that are preaching the gospel to afflict him, he's rejoicing that Christ is being proclaimed. And so in that, he rejoices. 
He rejoices because he's convinced that he's going to remain with the Philippians and continue to work for their progress and joy in the faith. And now, Paul wants them to complete his joy by their way of life. Begin to see the heart of Paul the pastor. What is it that is giving him joy in his ministry? What is it that is driving him that he wants more than anything else? We're going to see this in more clarity in the subsequent verses in 12 through 18. But Paul's joy isn't complete because he now gets to boast at how well his ministry is going or that he's reached even more churches. He's not boasting in how successful he's been. Paul's joy comes because he gets to see the gospel going forward through the effort that he's put forth. And he's rejoicing because the the labor that he is doing among the churches, he's seeing that it is producing a happiness and a holiness for God's people. The Philippians are going to begin to look more like Christ. They're going to love Christ more. And so Paul's rejoicing in that. He's saying he's willing to be put to death if it means that they can finish the race well. The sheep are hurting. Paul is hurting. If they're happy in the best sense of that word, then he's happy. When Paul sees the gospel going forward, that is what he begins to rejoice in. It's a beautiful reminder of what it means to actually shepherd a flock, not to build your own kingdom, but to serve Christ's sheep. And now Paul's saying, complete my joy. Make it abound by continuing on in what I have called you and ultimately what Christ has called you to do. And so this shepherd, this pastor, loves his people. He lays out his concern for them. He's pleading with them. And he lays out this concern with this series of commands where where he says, not this, I don't want you to do this behavior, but I want you to do that. So not this, but that. Not selfish ambition or conceit, but humility. I don't want you not looking to your own interests, but to the interests of others. So saying, don't live this way, live this way. Which tells us that there really are essentially two ways for God's people to live. Really two ways for anyone to live in relationship with one another. And Paul specifically addresses how members of of the church are to live with one another. But this isn't just for all the mature, grown-up adults, kids. These commands, they they apply to you as well, which you know, sometimes think, oh, that, that's that's nice. But kids, these commands apply to you just as much as they do to adults. The way you treat your, your brothers and your sisters, 
not with selfish ambition, but humility. This applies to how husbands and wives live with one another. The way we live together applies to roommates, to classmates, to teammates, fraternity mates, primates, which a lot of times are the same thing. There's two ways for us to, to treat one another, to live in relationship with one another. You can live either being self-centered, self-absorbed, where everything that happens is about you. It is about your happiness. It is about your kingdom. Or, Paul says, you can live humbly, live meekly, live putting others' needs above your own. Now, there are two options for all of us. And Paul says, not the first option, not self-centeredness, live out the second option in humility. And to be honest, if we think about that and all of the ways it can affect our relationships, all of the ways that we can apply this in different conflicts we've been in, this can be a scary proposition. Paul's calling us to continual, ongoing self-sacrifice for the good of others. That sounds like it could actually be hard. People are messy. We're sinful. We're, we're broken. We, so I'm, I'm going to put others' needs above my own, even when they're imperfect. Doesn't that just mean I'm going to become a doormat? Everybody else is going to walk all over me. I'll, I'll just be run ragged, serving everybody that I can. Is that what that is going to mean? Well, in, in the worst case scenario is, yeah, that is what that would mean. Sometimes people sin. Sometimes they'll take advantage of you. Sometimes they will afflict you. Yes, that is what that means. And if that's true to live, that will be Christ. You will be identifying with your Savior and all of his sufferings, all of his affliction, all of his mistreatment. But in the best case scenario, when this works well, the entire church is living this life of sacrificial service to one another. And there's actually going to be a mutual giving and blessing and grace and humility that is going back and forth from brother to sister all throughout the church. And when that happens, it's a beautiful thing. That is a wonderful reflection of the gospel. I tell my kids all the time, imagine what would happen in our family or in your friendships if you didn't have to go up to someone and steal their toy from them because you wanted to play with it? What if instead of, of walking up and having to yank something out of somebody's hand, you knew that, that if you went up to a friend or a sibling and said, could, could I please play with that? You knew that they would say, of course, because that sibling or friend knows that you also have their best interest at heart, and they know that when you're done with it, they're going to give it back. And there would be joyful sharing and love back and forth between one another. Imagine what a household or a friendship would look like if there was that type of self-sacrifice for one another. 
There's no fear that you're going to be unhappy or that you're going to be missing out because everyone is looking out for the happiness of the other person. Everyone is seeking to be a blessing to others more than they're selfishly hoarding for themselves. Imagine that picture. Kids, imagine that with your friends. If your greatest desire was their best interest and their greatest desire was your best interest, how well you would get along. And that type of life, that joyful self-sacrifice for the edification of one another, that is the way the church is meant to live in the midst of a prideful and depraved world. So you think about that's not how our culture thinks. It's not how our culture acts. Everything in our culture says you get what you need for you. You take care of yourself. And sometimes at the expense of others, that can still be justified. Imagine the church living the way Christ lived and the way Paul calls us to in the midst of this prideful world. Think of the description of the church in Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 42, it says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship. That's good. Okay, think, okay they got their, their doctrine, they're growing in their understanding and knowledge, but that's not all that characterizes the church. They're growing in fellowship, committed to the breaking of bread and to prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and their belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God, having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. I get this is a unique time in the history of the church. I'm not arguing that day by day we're going to see multitudes being saved. But do you see here in Acts 2 how the gospel is going forth? That the word is being preached and proclaimed by the apostles and the testimony of the church through its love for one another is confirming the truth of the word that the apostles are preaching. That confirmation is helping add to what they're saying, that the life of the church is matching the doctrine that's being proclaimed. People are seeing that, they're hearing it, and they're believing. What a wonderful way for the church to confirm what it believes about the gospel. Compare that to what happens later on in Acts chapter 6. There's a complaint that arises in the church because the Jewish Christians who, and again, the whole church is meant to be caring for the needs of everyone, the Jewish Christians are neglecting caring for the Gentile widows in the daily distributions. Right? So there are these Gentiles that are poor. They're in need of this generosity from the church, but the Jewish leaders are overlooking the Gentile leaders. And so now a conflict is arising within the church. 
They're not looking out for the needs of everyone. So fellowship is breaking amongst the brothers and the sisters. And so the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So in light of this conflict, needs aren't being met. The apostles say, listen, this is beginning to detract from our calling of preaching the word. So praise the Lord, they ordain these deacons. And the office of deacon was created to help meet the needs of the church. Because this conflict is threatening the unity of the church. And it's ultimately going to detract from the church's effectiveness in proclaiming the gospel. The Jews and the Gentiles are no longer focusing on the mission of the church. They're just worried about fighting with one another and making sure the other side gets what's coming to them and understands how much they've sinned. So the apostles and the disciples well, now they're not focused on the mission of the church because they're focused on putting out this fire. They got to figure out what to do. So again, praise the Lord for deacons who can actually step into the situation. Praise the Lord for our deacons. Now there's not conflict arising, but just felt I want to plug. I love our deacons. We see the greater the disunity is within the church, the greater of a hindrance it is to the gospel mission of the church. I think about this within our own denomination. PCA is not without its share of controversy. Surely, this past few years, even some more than others. But you think about the denominational level, it's actually going pretty well. It is relatively peaceful comparatively. You don't develop the greatest... Presbyterian mission force in the history of the world if there isn't relative unity in what that mission should be. Just praise the Lord for that. Think about our presbytery, even better than denominationally, the presbytery level, just a bunch of churches and pastors who are just like-minded that, that come together to encourage one another, to pray for one another, to equip one another, to raise up new godly young men to ordain them and send them to plant more churches and reach more people and lead more ministries. Think about what's happening in Detroit. They, they want to plant 20 to 30 churches in the next 15 years. They've already got five or so going right now. There's another half dozen around the rest of the state. All of these things are possible because as pastors and as churches in the presbytery, there is a unity and a fellowship that, that makes all of this work joyful. Think if, if, if we're coming together every few months to fight with one another and to be suspicious and talk about how you're not good enough and just you're not upholding your end of the deal and there's just all of this conflict, then these churches aren't getting planted. These people are not being reached. It's a beautiful thing when brothers and sisters dwell together in unity, continue to set their eyes on what the true mission of the church is and how God can work through them to accomplish that when they are aligned. 
And so you can see why Paul in this letter is very concerned about this issue with the Philippians. This is why it's actually affecting his joy when he talks about the church, when he sees that there's actually division arising among them. It's distressing to him because he's recognizing that this is actually a very important point that he has to address. This is why we too, as a church, must strive for the same grace, for the same humility, for the same mutual upbuilding of one another. Yes, there, there's a great threat to the gospel out there. Won't deny that. But there's an even greater threat to the gospel in here. That if the church is not united, then we will not be able to accomplish our mission. So what is the antidote to this division? How do we continue to remain united and hospitable and humble towards one another so that the gospel can continue to go forward? Well, we go back to Sunday school. The answer is Jesus. The answer is always Jesus, but for real, the answer is Jesus. So what about Jesus helps us in this unity? Well, verse 5, Paul wants the Philippians to treat each other the way that Christ treats us, treats one another. That's, that's his main command to the Philippians. He says, have this mindset, so this mindset of unity, not this, but that, have this mindset that is yours in Christ. And he goes on to list another long description of the character of who Christ is. But, but that's the answer, is you think about who you are in relationship to your Savior. You think about who your Savior is, and you adopt that, that mindset as you seek to live with one another. And so as we come down the back half of this mountain, all I want to do is just work through Paul's descriptions of who Jesus is and let that hopefully work itself into our hearts so we can understand better our Savior and that his glory will begin to transform our hearts. I, I just want us to be overcome in awe the glory of Christ. So first, Paul opens this section. Now I'm going backwards, but bear with me. He says, first, we see that there is encouragement in Christ. That's in verse 1. You know, many scholars, as, as Paul opens, recognize that there's actually a, a Trinitarian formula here, much like the Trinitarian formula that Paul ends 2 Corinthians with, where he says, may the grace of the Lord Jesus and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. That that same formula is at work. There's encouragement in Christ. If there's any comfort from love, presumably of the Father, any participation in the Spirit. Paul is showing that the entire Godhead is at work in our perseverance in both our external threats. He's connecting this Trinitarian formula to what's come before, but he's also saying that the entire Godhead is at work in these internal threats. Again, Paul's just finished telling them that 
Christ has called them to suffer. It's been granted to them. And now he's saying, if there's any encouragement in Christ, then continue on in this obedience. Which again tells us Christ is granting the suffering. Christ is encouraging them. So continue on. That tells us that where Christ calls, he will lead. He's going to grant you to suffer. He's going to grant that you're going to go through pain. He's going to grant that you will experience affliction, both externally from the church and internally. Then we know that he will be with you. That he will provide what you need to endure that suffering. If he's going to bring you to a church full of difficult circumstances, then he's going to give you the grace you need to face the trials that he's bringing upon you. Where Christ calls, he leads. These commands that Paul gives are based on an if-then type of argument, saying if Christ is at work, which he is, then you need to respond to that work. He's not calling you to do something impossible and then saying, hey, all right, go do it, church. You're on your own. No, Christ is calling us to do something very difficult. He's telling us, do hard things, and then he's giving us what we need to face those circumstances. So there is encouragement in Christ. There is love from the Father. We do have fellowship with the Holy Spirit and with one another, and so we then live in light of these realities. If that is true, then this is how you obey. That's the argument Paul makes. There is encouragement in Christ, so we can live with one another in humility. Second, and probably most famously in this passage, Paul reminds us that Christ is God. Should go without saying, but it's true. It's going to be important as we unpack this. And you maybe have heard people sort of balk at Paul's description here of Christ. So, well, no, he says he's in the form of God. What's, what's that about? Wonder, is this some type of Aryan controversy that's beginning to brew up? Well, no, actually, if you understand the, the grammar and what Paul's doing, you understand it's the exact opposite of some Aryan controversy where Paul's saying Jesus isn't quite God. The exact opposite's happening. Paul is emphatically affirming that Christ is God. The, the word that Paul uses here for form, it's the same one that he uses later on in verse 8 when he says that Christ took on the form of a servant. And, and it is a difficult word to capture the full meaning of. And so a one-to-one -one translation is difficult. But it, it means sort of having the requisite uh, characteristics of something to be considered that thing. I'll, I'll explain that more in a minute. It, it means that you, you actually not just on the outside look like what you're supposed to look like, but on the inside, you, you possess what, what you actually are, are claiming to be. So think 
We sometimes say, oh, Bob has the form of godliness. Outwardly, he, he looks the part, but inwardly, he's really depraved. That's not the way Paul is using the word form. No, what, what form means, again, it's, it's possessing the inherent qualities of what makes something. So if something has the form of a car, it has all of the required things that are necessary to make a car a car. Think, anybody ever watch a soapbox derby where you're in this little cart with, you know, wheels and a steering wheel and a seat and it's going down a hill? That maybe outwardly looks like a car, but it's not a car. It doesn't have an engine. So it doesn't actually have the form of a car. So the way the NIV translates this passage is, is probably closer to the actual meaning of what it means that Christ is in the form of God, that he, he possesses what is required of being God. The NIV says, Christ, who being in the very nature God, he, he possesses all of the things that make God God. That, that's what he's trying to get at by the word form. So again, it's not like Paul is saying, like an Arian controversy, oh, Jesus is less than God. He's saying, he has everything he needs to be God. Jesus is the one who has Godness. He, he is preexistent. He is eternal. He is infinitely glorious and righteous and powerful and majestic. He is the one through whom all things were made. The one who upholds all things by the word of his power. Jesus is God. He is in the form of God, the substance of God. He is equal with God. That's what Paul means. Jesus is God. And even then, being equal with God, being God, does not count the glory that is due to him as God as something to be grasped, something to be seized upon. Again, this is a technical term, the way a robber would seize upon his loot and grab hold of it, or the way a predator seizes upon its prey and, and grabs hold of it, not to let it go. You're not taking this out of my hand. Christ, very God of very God, lets go of his glory, empties himself of his glory, not his divinity. He still possesses that, but he humbles himself and takes on the form, same word, of a servant. The very nature of what it means to be God, the very godness, is possessing the very nature of servantness. Do you understand what that means? That fundamentally, one of the things that it means to be God is that it means you are a servant. So Christ sets aside his claim to the throne and his claim to glory because he fundamentally is a servant to his enemies. The one who is most deserving of worship, the most deserving 
of power does not lay claim to it, does not seize upon it, not something to be grasped. He lets it go. And yet, daily, we, the least deserving of glory, the least deserving of power, daily, we demand to be put into the place of God. God himself lets it go. And we claim it for ourselves. Christ can freely become a servant for the sake of his people. And yet we can't possibly fathom that someone wouldn't seek to honor us the way we think we deserve. You begin to see the point that Paul is making for us, don't you? Look at your Savior, the way he lives as a servant. Seems that the church sometimes gets things backward. Think about it further. Think if Jesus held on to his glory the same way that we tried to hold on to ours. There would be no salvation. If Jesus treated us the way we treat others, we would be left in our sin. It is only because of his humility, his servant-heartedness, that we have any hope in this world. It was an act of humble service that bore the good news of the gospel, that, that brought it to fruition. And it is acts of humble service in us that are meant to continue to bring that gospel to the world. We're called to live like our Savior. To set forth an example of humility and service to others, that the gospel might continue to go out. And think of the, the, this humble service that Jesus offered. What was that? What is the depth of this humble service? How far did he go to secure our salvation? Think, oh yeah, he was just a nice guy and came to earth and probably shoveled his neighbor's sidewalks in the winter and, you know, brought the meals to new moms in the church. And, you know, he's, he's always there to talk to. No, that, that, that is just a shadow of what it means to be a servant. Paul emphasizes Jesus's service over and over again. Jesus's humble service meant that he followed his father. He, he obeyed his father to the point of death. Death even on the cross. Death to save his enemies. Death in the most humiliating fashion that has ever been seen. That is what Jesus did for you. He died humiliated for his enemies. The God of the universe the one whom all glory and honor and power is due, dies on the cross alone, forsaken, because he is a servant. Dies that we might be transformed to be the same humble servants. It's like a church that is marked 
by division, by selfishness, by gossip, by anger, by pride, by resentment, hostility, churches marked by coldness. That is a church that has lost sight of what the death of Christ truly means. That is a church that thinks far too little of Christ and what he emptied himself of. And it is a church that thinks far too much of itself that they deserve to grasp onto their own glory. An act that not even Jesus did. Let that not be so of this church, that we would understand the true depths of Christ's humility for us and that it would transform us to live like him. Christ encourages. Christ is God. Lastly, Christ is exalted. Yes, he was humiliated. And after his humiliation, he rises in triumph and ascends into heaven where he reigns supreme. Sits at the right hand of the throne of God. He still bears the marks of his death and his humiliation, but he also wears the crown. Isaiah 45, verse 23. It's what God says to his people. He says, turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn from my mouth it has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear allegiance. That sounds familiar, right? Paul's quoting this passage here to refer to Christ. This promise that Yahweh, the, the one true God, who is God alone, he gives to his people that every knee will bow to me, every tongue will confess. This promise becomes fulfilled in Christ. Don't minimize that. We think, well, yeah, obviously that's what happened. But in Isaiah, God the Father is saying that worship is due to me, and now the Father has transferred that glory that is due to him to his Son. Precisely because of the Son's act of service to redeem a people for himself and for the Father. The father didn't leave his son in the grave ashamed that he was forsaken by man and think, oh, what a humiliation that was. The father raises the son and exalts him specifically because he went to the grave. How often in this life do we worry about doing everything that we can to protect and preserve our own name? How much we're willing to fight and scrap and claw that others will worship us. You've got to do everything you can to make sure people respect you. How many of our conflicts in the church are due to us feeling slighted, feeling unseen? Does God not see everything? 
Let me, let me bring this home for us. Again, think of chapter one, what Paul says. He's awaiting his trial. Doesn't know if he's going to live or die. And we, set, we saw that Paul says, either way, whatever happens to me, I know this is going to work out for my deliverance. It's, it's the word salvation, the Greek word for salvation. But remember, we saw back in chapter one that what the salvation Paul's referring to is his vindication. And then in verse 28, last week, the believer's steadfastness in the face of persecution would be a sign of their salvation. Again, it's the same word. And again, I argued that, once again, it was referring to their vindication in the eyes of the unbelievers. Jesus endures a humiliating death, and God raises him and exalts him. Every knee bows before him and will confess that he is Lord. Even the ones that don't believe now, they will believe in that day. That is a universal vindication that will take place at the end of the age. It's Paul's theme throughout this letter that God sees and he vindicates. So Christian, remember, God sees you. He sees the burdens that you bear. He sees the ways that you're mistreated and don't respond in retaliation, the way that you patiently endure, extending grace to others, even when they're the ones who do you wrong. God sees how you humbly and quietly serve, not seeking any congratulations for yourself, not seeking any adulation, not seeking to get your name on a plaque, how you're just quietly working for the good of others. God sees you. And just like Christ, in the last day, you too will receive your reward. There will be vindication. There will be celebration over all that God's people have done. You don't need to create this vindication for yourself here on earth at the expense of others and at the expense of the gospel. You can trust that God sees, patiently, quietly endure maintaining the peace and the purity and the unity of the church. Sometimes the gospel is hindered by persecution and by backpedaling and by silence. More often in the church, the gospel is hindered by pride and by boasting. If we are to be a gospel people, if we are to be a gospel church, then we must look to Christ, our Lord. Let us not boast in anything. No gifts, no power, no wisdom. Let us boast in Christ and his death and resurrection. Let us pray. Oh Lord, we do ask for your help. It is often hard to lay down our pride, to lay down our glory, to not grasp onto it when we think we ought. 
But we have an example in Christ. Through though being the form of God, did not count equality, did not count the glory that is due to him, something to be grasped. Oh, we pray you would help make us like our Savior. Help us follow our Master in this way of humility. That your church would adorn the gospel through our lives. I ask all of this in our Savior's holy name. Amen.